Here we go. It's time to shift our schools. Welcome to Shifting Our Schools podcast. Shifting Our Schools is created and produced by Jeff Udick and David Carpenter. Shifting Our Schools podcast is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 share like license. In other words, if you like what you hear, go ahead and use it. Well, welcome to another Shifting Our Schools podcast. We're here tonight with a big essential question, one I'm, I'm just dying to dig into. Uh, our essential question tonight is, can the IB curriculum be shifted? And joining us tonight is a special guest and a uh, close friend of mine as a as he left uh, International School Bangkok here and I took his position, we did a lot of collaborating, uh, and that's Justin Medved from Canada, and we'll be hearing from him in a second. But first up is Mr. David Carpenter from good old Morocco. How are you tonight, David? I'm, I'm doing really well. I've uh, done a little traveling in the last week. We went to Marrakesh and just had a wonderful time with the snake charmers and the acrobats and the uh, salesmen and had a real, a real good feel for that trip, so things are, are well. How are, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, it's, uh, the rainy season's gone, so it's hot and dry, so we had to water our grass the last couple of days. I still, of course, have a fan on me tonight because, uh, of course, it is, it is Bangkok and we are still hot. So that's about all that she wrote for here. <laughs> Not much change. So, uh, Joining us tonight from Canada, Mr. Justin Medved. How are you tonight, Justin? I'm very well, thank you very much. Yeah, and, things are great. Yeah, that's good. Um, just uh, how many times have we actually met in person? I was thinking about this. Twice, three times. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the first time would have been virtually when I was at my, the Boston conference. Yeah. It's basically weighing whether I went to ISB or Shanghai American. And thank you for your insights. I made the right <laughs> choice. And um, and then I think you came to Bangkok. Uh, no, we met. At, I think the first time was the officially at the the learning conference. Yeah, the one you hosted in Shanghai, and then again uh, for drinks in Bangkok. Okay. And that I mean, might be it. That might be it. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I feel like I know you. I mean, uh, we've had so many conversations back and forth, and uh, totally. Of course, the the Justin to Jeff transition. Uh, when I took your job here, uh, even two years later, I still get called Justin. So <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a fun transition to come in and try to fill your shoes here for sure. I tell you, they were big. Uh, they were big, uh, big shoes to fill, and the staff still thanks, does dearly miss you here. So, uh, so thanks, I'm, I'm thanks. glad we could bring you back. Tell us a little about where you're working at now and, and kind of the position you're in. Sure. So um, the York School is a small K to 12 school in Toronto. Um, it's one of the oldest laptop programs in Canada. It's a one-to-one program that started 11 years ago. And um, it is a full IB school that runs the PYP, MYP, and IB all under one roof. And my job, uh, which is a new job, one that they had kind of as in a hybrid position uh, where I used to before leaving the for Bangkok do and a kind of point 
you know, five kind of basis, which was the technology and learning coordinator, which has since more morphed into a full-time job of technology and learning specialists, kind of supporting the whole school, staff, students, and vision, um, just given the speed at which everything changes, schools in Toronto and Canada, which typically are, I think, a little bit behind international schools in the way that they're adapting to all this. They're a bit more conservative, uh, are now starting to realize that they need someone full-time to do that, um, and kind of relinquishing the reins of the traditional, you know, gridded-out um, teacher schedule and now giving trusting someone to basically take the initiative and get in everywhere all the time. So I'm pretty busy. That's yeah. Well, I can imagine there's one of you for 500 kids. Yeah. And how many yeah. teachers? Yeah. How many teachers do you have? Teachers, um, plus a bunch, tons of support staff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, brutal. All right. Well, let's get launched into our essential question tonight. And I know that David has been wanting to. Uh, to take a to take a, a bite at this question, seeing that he's now working in an IB school and and teaching in the IB program. So, David, I will pass over to you to get us started tonight. Um, can the IB curriculum be shifted? Definitely, and and, and I'm going to take that and break it down a little bit because Justin has reminded us that we have three different um, levels for the IB program: the primary year program. <laughs> middle year program, and then the diploma program that I'm involved in. And so what I was asking Justin before the show, and, and I'll bring it out again here, is when we talk about shifting our uh, curriculum, our instruction, our assessment, I, I think we, we often narrow it down to how are we using technology and information and uh, inquiry, but we're also looking at how are we designing and facilitating learning for discovery learning uh, that our students are constructing their own understanding. So, Justin, my question is, if you could go through each of the levels and uh, explain how how can be and end off really where I think we have more barriers to shifting, that would be Sure. So um, the PYP, I think, for all three of the parts of the IB lends itself best to kind of what I guess we would talk about inquiry-based instruction because that's the the focus of the entire program is that kind of discovery learning. And it has already, I guess, in place some of those best practices like the backwards design and... and, um, that kind of approach to uh, teaching and learning that really looks at the student um, discovering and, and being exposed to big questions and wrestling with those questions and not so much on the content, but rather being immersed in the question for the, for the whole um, unit. And so uh, the PYP is, is um, an excellent kind of framework for that. And then as you move towards the, the uh, MYP, you've got... Again, it is a framework, so the IB philosophy around it is that it can fit any existing state standard or whatever. It's more about a best practice approach to planning, unit planning, assessment, and um, um, I guess thinking about teaching and learning. And so 
the NYP um, has its um, it's kind of got its areas. Um, it's got an, uh, approaches to learning area. It, um, it basically, in a nutshell, is trying to ensure that uh, uh, schools have a well-rounded curriculum um, by making sure they address things like uh, intercultural awareness, um, the, kind of the global perspective, um, the environment, uh, community and service, um, and those types of things. So it is, a, it is, again, a framework that I think the IB as a whole I, I think how it sees itself is it's a global um, kind of educational philosophy that is really trying to ensure what we all know yeah, is valuable, which is this kind of whole child, big global uh, kind of perspective, or I guess, um, um, I guess apply that kind of framework to education. And because there's an accountability piece, you know, the PYP, MIP, IB, there's an accreditation process, there's a membership process, um, you're accountable to it. And especially if you want to be in a fully accredited school like us, there is a moderation component where you're sending samples of unit planning. Uh, you're sending student work away for external moderations. You're not only... And, you know, doing your own internal PD and kind of growth and improvement, but you're having someone else check up on you in a sense, a third party to kind of say, are you, are you meeting the philosophy, the framework, um, and kind of checking that against whatever the global standards are, which I think is a healthy thing because schools are naturally, I think, pretty insular and they don't, you tend to just, and this is, you know, just human nature, I guess, you tend to only see yourself through your own eyes and you do things the way you do them and have someone else go, hey, you know, you can improve here and there. I think it's healthy. So uh, that is, that's the MYP in a nutshell. And the IB is its own beast because it's, it's, it is the oldest of the three programs. And I think it roots in kind of a long-standing international education um, that uh, parents of, you know, uh, expat parents of, you know, abroad wanted some kind of standard that they could, you know, um, I guess rely on I'm moving from post to post across the world. It was comforting to know that you could go to another school that had the ID program and know that you're getting the same kind of education and that that was internationally recognized by universities because typically people are going back home for University of the States, UK, Canada. And then most of these universities, and all these universities recognize the program and have, have a kind of you know, score for that. Where, where's the IB based? Is it Switzerland? That's right. Yeah, yeah they, have, they have curriculum in Cardiff. They've got, uh, they're based in Switzerland. They've got now an MIP office in Singapore. So they're there's different parts in different places, but I think yeah, the, the, the roots, the head office is in Switzerland. Okay. That's good. All right. So, well, thanks for that because that was a great overview. I mean, I, I, I have never taught in a PYP or MYP program, uh, both uh, Shanghai American School, where I was before here, and now here have the IB program in the high school. And that's pretty common in, in international schools as well where they will only adopt one portion of the 
of the whole IB program, and that's usually the high school portion because it is a, a pretty sure. intense course. Um, but it, you know, there's a lot of schools also that have gone full IB inclusion, which is the PYP in the in the primary years, the middle years, and then the whole IB diploma. So, David, I'll pass it back to you. What What are you thinking about this whole idea? Is is can the IB shift? What are you seeing now, being back in the classroom, as an IB teacher? Right, and and Justin hits on the biggie: the uh, external assessments that one can go and find the, in my case, history questions that have been used in the past, past uh, and get a good feel. And, and they're very standard questions, often compare and contrast and, and, and offer analysis for this event or action in history. Um, the, the question would be in the, in the preparation and trying to cover a lot of material uh, for that, that, uh, as Justin alluded to earlier, that they're, they're the time constraints that often put barriers forth. And then there is uh, the assessment technique of these kids will sit down and write essays. Um, and as, as we know from our efforts in our other classes and, and people book, the two of you work with uh, in your schools, there are a lot of other ways to assess than just essays. So I'm wondering there uh, in your at your York school there, uh, Justin, are you finding examples, uh, and what are some examples of IB teachers who are working for those external assessments? And I know it's it's different for each subject area. They're not always essays, but who are able to do other types of assessments and maybe more project-based learning and still get to the same outcome, that they uh, same preparation for those uh, external assessments. Yeah, uh, I, I can definitely speak to that. Before I do, I think it's important to acknowledge some of the the pressure that those IB teachers feel. Um, and this isn't necessarily that something you'd find in the IB manual. The first thing is that <laughs> their their uh, their marks for their courses are published. Um, so in a sense, the student uh, achievement is a, is published, um, and so your school comes gets to that that said like how did those history kids do last year, and here are their marks, and so as a result, you're accountable for those marks, um, which creates an interesting feedback loop of if you're being you know kind of to some degree um, you're. Your ability as a, as a teacher is to some degree tied to that, whether you like it or not, right? If everyone fails in your class, then people are going to ask them some questions. Why did they fail? They're going to look to you as the teacher. So that, that, that creates an interesting pressure on you to strive to make sure that those kids get those marks. And so how do they get those marks? Well, they get those marks in two ways. They get those marks from um, the external examinations that they take, which are traditionally in a in their standard globally, and they are in a traditional essay slash, um, you know, your exam style, multiple choice, um, you know, broad based kind of question set, and and then there's also with some of the languages you've got some oral samples, uh, or in drama you've got some uh, kind of visual samples, and in art you've got some things you submit, and you submit them all to external um, examiners globally, and so that. That accountability, while you can argue is 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 good, also creates, I think, um, an unconscious pressure to knowing that that exists, 
you know, at the end of the year, you're, you're always kind of building towards that. So you're, you do, I think, who's the master in the relationship? Well, you could be the most inquiry based, you know, constructivist teacher. You, at the end of the day, still need to produce those those marks you know do you know what i mean um in in some way and so that creates um well i think it it just has it speaks to where energy is applied yeah you know Mm. you only have so much energy and where do you do it and so um that being said um as long as you can prepare your students for those external examinations the route you take uh is completely up to you and so we we do have teachers using a variety of tools to to get to that end you know um with using wikis and you know a number of different tools um but on the kind of collaborative side where you have you know, you're, you're spending time engaging other classrooms and other IB classrooms. That's a tougher sell because there's a feeling that, that that's a wasted time, mm. right? Yeah. And sure. it's, a, it's, it's an archaic kind of idea that, like, if I'm not talking and telling you, you know, I'm not teaching you in that very kind of old school sense, and I can check that off the list that I did it, then it's not, you know, worth the 90 minutes. So that, that that those are some of the pressures that I think I, I see a lot. Um, and typically, when if I were to look at who I who I support in innovative ways, um, yes. I, my IB teachers are like ten percent of my time. And that's not because they don't want to. That's just because they feel that pressure. Um, you can, kind of, you can tell you're in school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so those are some of those things. Now, um, there are opportunities, and I know I'm um, just talking to Julie Lindsay, the idea is kind of moving in a direction, and they're kind of pilot testing um, their own kind of Ning um, e-learning kind of uh, portal slash system mm-hmm. that they want to roll out, recognizing that this is something they want to go down. But like all things, I think they like to have something standard that they um, kind of sign off on before they before they kind of encourage it. Um, and then with with collaborative projects, we you know we we have students and teachers um, and like for example, TOK lends itself well. So we had a, we had a, we had a um, a class last year, we, we were collaborating with a, an international school of Valencia, and um, we had them it was earlier in the year, and I'm, and maybe for Jeff, this and um, I was like someone supporting teachers in the high school next year. Earlier in the year is better um, yeah. because yeah. That, that kind of pressure isn't felt as much. Um, and you can kind of re- review the the year, the beginning of the year earlier, uh, later on. And so we typically did some of our better work in September, October, um, in that kind of collaborative, constructivist style where we were, they're building knowledge together. We gave them a kind of um, a kind of case study, a thinking case study, and they built the answer together. Um, so that was kind of cool. TOK lends itself well to those things, but it, um, and I imagine uh, history would as well. 
getting to things yes. like bio and uh, and chemistry and physics that are so content heavy in the and not just um, basically and how they're externally assessed. You just need to know all this stuff. It's like mm-hmm. a throwback kind of medical school. Um, they're it's much harder to get into those classrooms and kind of sell it as, you know, this could be really worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd agree with that. You know, by the time second semester rolls around here, which we're about ready to, you know, we're headed there as grades are getting ready to be due for first semester next week. Um, you can see that pressure building that we're into school now, you know, first semester's over, the test is looming at the end of April and we've got to get through content. And I think that's the, that's the thing that, um, that I see happen so much specifically in the IB is I see teachers who are, are totally, are trying to keep this balance between getting through the content that they have to in the amount of time that they have. And of course, they're, they're always feel that pressure. But knowing that they're giving up great learning opportunities yes. in order to get through that content. And I think that leads back to our, will the, can the IB make that change to where they become more learning focused um, and less content heavy? And I think for me, that's, that's my frustration with the IB program at this point in time. And I was trying to find on the IB website, and I can't find it, I'll keep continuing to look through the show, but they have a set of learning profiles, learner profiles. And I love the way their learner profiles are laid out. Like it's all about the student being inquisitive and asking questions and looking for deeper meeting. The problem is, is when it comes to under, having to have that content by the 1st of May to take the test, all of that goes out the window because you just need to have the content. So this is, this is the problem I'm seeing, and this is me. And I, again, I've never been an IB teacher, but I, I'm trying to support teachers in this program, is there's this constant battle between what we know good teaching is, which is student-centric, learning, inquiry-based, which is the PYP and the MYP program, and then we hit the IB, and we've got to have this content for this external assessment done by the 1st of May. And that is so heavily driving our high schools that – and and I'm not sure if that's the right approach. You know, when we all know where content is going, do we still need to have those tests? Now, that's just one piece. The second part's the actual tests themselves, and we can talk about that a, little, a bit later. But what's your feeling on that, Justin? I mean, how does that – can the IB make that change? Are they working on that change? And I don't know. Um, I I should have Twittered the IB today and seen if we could have got somebody on to the show, and maybe we will in the future, see if we can get somebody from the IB on the show. But – I, that's the part that I struggle with is, A, you're absolutely right that teachers feel this pressure, and, B, it's a pressure to cover content, not a pressure for learning purposes. Yeah. Um, what If you had someone on the show, they would talk about themes of the IB program with your cast hours and your focus on the intercultural and global mindedness and um, the the kind of the, the broad based curricular kind of overview so that you're kind of really teaching or that you're providing opportunities for thinking um, in a wide variety of subject areas and then and then the way that we you know plan within the, the philosophy of the IB is kind of rooted in best practices however that being said, a system is in place that universities are a part of, which they have an, a translated grade, right? So especially in the international schools and schools like mine, where your IB7 is recognized by whatever school you're interested in as sure. being this. Yeah. And so that is so ingrained in 
that the protracted process of going to university, yeah. that that institution and that whole system, which kind of gets into its fervor into the grade 11 and 12 years, really contributes to to everything we're talking about. Right. And as much as we would love to see that shift, it essentially is dictated by what the universities want, um, especially you know, let's say in my case where Canadian kids don't have to take SATs, right? So right. that's its own its own beast in and to itself. But their IB predicted grade and final grade, especially predicted grade, um, which is that before they write those final examinations, our teachers send out a predicted grade, and then that's matched against their final grade. Uh, universities use that as a early benchmark as to whether they let them in. And so it means everything. And, and, um, and this gets to the actual test itself, because, and, and I'm sure, and David, I'm sure you'll, I don't know how it is in history, but I know our English teachers, I will constantly have IB English teachers come to me and say, you know what, I'd love for the kids to be able to do this on the computer, to be able to type their, to type, you know, their, their um, essay on the computer or something like that. But when it comes time to take that exam, they've got an hour and they've got to be able to write by hand. And this is one of the things that frustrates me. And it, it, the, what frustrates me, I think, is the whole system, because you're right. They, the colleges are accepting this, and they believe that this is part of it. But at the same time, once you get to university, I don't think there's probably a university kid yet at this point that, hand, that hands in a handwritten uh, a piece of paper. But yet, even up to 12th grade, our kids have to be handwriting to pass a test. And to me, that and, – and, and the teachers don't – I mean, the teachers would use computers if they want to. And the frustrating part is our middle school teachers never have kids write anything because in middle school, they're not to that testing stage yet. And so our, our middle school teachers, I've had sixth and seventh grade teachers say, I haven't accepted handwritten work in years. Yet when you get back into high school, all of a sudden you have to start writing again because you have to for the test. So it, it's, it's, it's a very frustrating system. Yeah, they are. I know they are making uh, forays uh, into, and we're piloting some things around uh, testing on computers. Like we have something called a Secure Exam here, which I know that they are looking at. There's a few other kind of people who do this and and locking down the computer so kids can write on that. Especially if we're talking about differentiated, um, you know, instruction. Some kids express themselves better that way and yep. we have to acknowledge that um and i know that they are you know they're experimenting with epals it's just such a huge it's like a goliath it's like this big institution that is so one thing if anyone who really knows all three knows that they all don't talk to each other it's not this like cohesive <laughs> uh, nice you know seamless system they're really their own entities um right. unto themselves and then within the big you know the big the ib it's such a slow mover, you know, it, to, to change, uh, even slower than schools, yeah. um, because any any major changes it makes have have ripple effects that they uh, that they I guess have to deal with. Um, so, so are they going to survive? Are they going to survive the information revolution if they are that slow to change? And I agree that they're that slow to. I mean, it was only what two or three years ago they started taking MP3 files for the orals in foreign languages. You know, an MP3. I mean, we we literally had tape decks in school just for the IB to record kids to record kids' voices. Um, yeah, you're not the only one. Yeah, and this is the thing, right? So, it, this comes back to our question: Can they shift fast enough to keep up with the information world? And what's it going to take to a either make them shift faster, or b for them to become so extinct that schools or universities? 
no, probably be schools first before universities, start saying, you know what? What you are telling or asking our kids to do no longer matches our philosophy on what we believe students need to know today. Yeah. But, you know, someone in the chat just mentioned that they're the fastest growing curriculum. And that is is actually rooted in a few things I think the IB does well, especially where it's growing in the States, which is basically it's mandating saying if you want to be part of our group, then you need to really look at your curriculum and look at it through a few different lenses. One, to one degree, are you... you to students to engage and basis like how are you engaging your students thinking how they can contribute and be real citizens you know to to the communities they're part of and so those two things which some schools do unconsciously and because of the people that work there and the leadership that they have and some schools just don't they're, they're just like well why would i even bother you know bringing in global perspectives and so while it might not be so quick to change on that level which I think is super important. There is a, I think it does bring in some other things which look at the big picture of education, which I think are healthy. Um, and especially some schools which are, I guess, not going to say broken, but, um, you know, who are maybe narrow in the way, the extent to which they look at education. This allows a framework to work in, um, and uh, offers guidelines, um, to kind of and parameters to work in, which are which are rooted in best practice, um, and I get and best education. So that's one thing. On the other hand, you're right though. People people will well schools are are frustrated um, in the degree to which they're just behind. And in the examples like that of like uh, how are the orals collected or how can students submit work and um, you know. The OCC, the online curriculum center, for anyone who's on there, why is that? Why does it? Why can I find nothing on there? You know, yeah. when I'm looking for resources um, and stuff like that. Um, but I think, unfortunately, it's it's going to have to happen kind of grassroots, like everything else in education, where good examples shine through and are shared, and um, good schools are just going to almost have to show, um, you know, show. Or lead the way, I guess. David, how about you? What are what are you seeing as a teacher in the trenches, and what are some of the struggles you you um, are now seeing as an IB teacher? Uh, uh, one of the things that's really jumping out at me is is you talk about the information rich world that we're we're training our students for, and history is naturally set up for that. And one of the things in coming in. As a constructivist teacher and an inquiry teacher, I've really put before my kids lots of resources, whether it's textbook-based or online-based or, or media, podcast, whatever it might be. And because the student, uh, the school hasn't shifted very much in that direction and I'm dealing with the kids at the end of the process, it's been a struggle for them to become our 21st century information gatherers and filters, and and I just I really need to talk to some people at other schools that they push back when I put uh, put it in, in their hands to go out and look at information, and I give them questions, and they're to create questions, and they're to, to to bring it all together and come to their own conclusions. And a lot of it is 
pretty standard, what were the causes of World War II, uh, those, those pretty straightforward questions. Um, but they push back on it because they want, as both of you have said, they want what are the answers. I only have this much time. I've got five other classes. I've, I'm working on my TOK uh, essay. I've got my extended essay. Then in some ways, as I sit back and look at this as a teacher and as a parent with two middle school boys, it's so big and so overwhelming, and I see a lot of positives, especially with the CAS and the TOK, which which open up the world much more to to the kids, as Justin's pointing out. But it is that, that it's so much that I get that, just tell us what we need to know, which I won't do. Um, that's a bit frustrating, but then if I was at another school and I'd been there for many years, and the kids in the middle year, and we had a middle year program, and they were naturally used to being independent active learners, then I think it'd be a, a different uh, situation than where I am right now. One of the things that that I do see an area where we can keep moving forward on that I mentioned in the last show is collaboration, that I've been pushing these students to collaborate in study teams. And it's great to hear, Justin, that you've got that example from your school where they actively work with children from another school to, to I, I guess, share resources, maybe build a project together. And uh, if I be on the professional development side, the OCC that you mentioned, if we can expand that to make it a much more valuable resource where we get more whatever we call ourselves, uh, constructivist teachers, information uh, and communication literate teachers, that we get more active people that want to collaborate with more innovative instructional strategies and assessments, then, then as you pointed out again, we, we might get some breakthroughs. And, and there are a couple of schools out there, and I'm going to mention one as um, is, is my uh, website at the week, um, but I guess that's that's kind of my response to assessment. Give them a pen, and I say, this is the way we have In your desk, you just can't use it. Yeah. So, um, so if anybody wants to call uh, SOS uh, podcast on Skype, or give me a chat, and if you chat me, I'll add you in, and... Uh, well, if you have a question or want to join the conversation, um, we'll add you into the Skype and let you let you chime in here and join us. Uh, make sure you have earbuds in and make sure you shut off the stream first before you do that. Um, so, getting back to the central question: Can they shift? Can the can do you think yes or no? Do you think the IB curriculum will shift and shift fast enough, or do you think schools aren't willing to give them up? Yeah, I. Uh... I think it, innovative schools are going to have to take it on themselves uh, to um, basically I don't know, carve out time or or basically say, all right, you know, we think that these experiences and this type of teaching is important, so we we're encouraging you to do this alongside, and we're going to support we're going to support that. Um, and it all, I think it has to come within the school. I think we're all going to be disappointed if we look to for that kind of leadership to come from the IB. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's just my, that's just the way I, I kind of see it. I think our school and and you know ISB and in just their vision for learning, it has that word collaborative embedded right into it. It's it, it's coming back from 
what we believe as an institution to be right and true. So we're going to we're going to really embed that in how we do things around here. Um, and but I guess that sensitivity to those other those teachers who teach under the IB is always is always going to be going to be there. Yeah. And your big your big risk takers are, are going to be there. But um, yes, it's hard. It's hard, you know, for to, to ask an IB teacher is, you know, you know, just just struggling to to kind of go down that road. Yeah. But I mean, I, that's like that's like anything I guess. Yeah. Well, and I think the other part is too is like Paul said in the chat room is, you know, you have the IB is this very closed system where to get into an IB school because they want those test scores to be so good, they like people with IB experience. But you can't get any IB experience until you get into an IB school. So it's this really this closed system that that is difficult to get into. And because of that, when you have a teacher who has been successful on the external exam, those are the ones that I find the hardest to change. Because, you know, they'll yeah. say, look, I, you know, I've been teaching this subject yes. now for 17 years. My kids are always scoring fives and sixes on the external exam. There's no reason why I need to do anything with the computers. Let somebody else That's do it. My, I'm doing just fine. Whether or not they're actually preparing kids for the world that awaits them, even in university. You know, their, their report came out at the end of November that shows that 80% of incoming freshmen will take an online class. Period. Like that yeah. is that. Those are the new figures coming out of universities. But we have teachers who say, "Look, that's fine. They're going to have to figure that out for themselves when they're freshmen. Right now, I need to get them past this test. I've been doing this for 17 years, so just leave me alone." And I think to me yeah. that that's part of the frustration Jeff, as well because yeah. of that closed system. And Jeff, that's you. You really hit a big one there as well too. And speaking to a principal in one of the European international schools, that's just the obstacle that he was saying he faces. That teacher who has all that experience, uh, that, that gets the kids, well, I'm going to pull that back, that student score like a six or potentially a seven. And we know often that it, the kids are going to score it in spite of us, that when you're in a very top-notch international school uh, with with very select, selective entrance practices, you're going to have really, really strong students. And they're going to be the kind of kids who know how to study, who know how to write the essays, and they're going to they're do well. But if you're missing out, as you were saying earlier, on giving up other learning opportunities, wh- whether it be going out and, and taking that information and using it in a new situation, or like in my situation, we're studying World War II, boy, I would like to take a couple days and, and talk about President Obama's uh, decision on how to handle Afghanistan, trying to make some connections mm-hmm. there yeah. uh, if some of my students are interested. But we can't do that. We've, we've got to move on. And I, I did want to add one more thing as a novice, a newbie to all this. Uh, Justin, you really uh, – a big takeaway from, from your discussion is if we had a middle years program here – if we were already a shifted school and we had some of those middle school teachers who were shifted educators who taught a few of, the, of our uh, IB diploma classes, we would have those risk takers here uh, showing us ways uh, to shift our, our, the way we teach and, and saying it's okay to, to, to back off a little bit from just skill and drill uh, if that's a big primary thing that a lot of the teachers are doing. So. That's one of the things that I suspect an IB official would say to us is, hey, if you have the middle years program and hopefully maybe the primary years program, you're really setting the stage to have a much better 
diploma program. I, I'm just guessing. Yeah. I, and I also think like there, there's two types of experienced teachers, Jeff. I, I totally know the one you're referring to, which is like I got my system and it works, and I'm, I'm churning out these great grades, yeah. and everyone's happy. But then I think you also have another one. You've got your risk-taking teacher, but to be a good, not a good, but to be a strong IB teacher and I say IB teacher, you first have to understand the system. And that takes like four or five years of yes. teaching the same subject yes. to really get the nuances of the language and assessment practices and have gone through a four or five uh, exams period to see the kinds of – and once you've done that, you get, you're confident about how it works, and then you can kind of ease off the IB throttle and go on the next throttle, which is, okay, how can I really make this come alive and make it really engaging and cool in new ways? But that, unfortunately, that just takes a while, and, and you, it's understandable how someone is going to put the time into the IB first – and before they do the other stuff, it's yeah. because the teachers who are hired are the ones who are literate in the language of the IB. Right. Because in the interview situation, they're the ones who can speak to all of those questions that, that someone wants. Because yeah. they're going to hire the IB teacher first and the 21st century, you know, teacher second yeah. for that position anyway. Yeah. But is that, I mean, and I understand, and there are teachers out there that, that have you know, we've done some amazing things like, you know, Jason Welker, uh, who's the IB economics teacher in Zurich and runs his whole course is open on an open wiki that is now tied into Forbes. Uh, and it has a link on the Forbes.com site to the wiki that his kids create around all of the things they study in economics and all the economic terms and all the yeah, definitions and all that stuff. Like, like that to me is one example. Like he found a way to say, hey, look, we still got to study the content, but there's a way that this content can be useful to the world. And how do we yeah. do that? And, you know, I, I, there are teachers, you're right, yes. there are teachers that, that are doing it, but there's so few and far between. And, and, and to me, it comes down to the first things that you talked about, you know, is, is the pressure that those teachers feel. And it, for many teachers, that pressure is so great, they don't feel they can take a risk. And to me, that's mm -hmm. just sad. And, and, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't know if that's a fault of the teacher. I don't know if that's a fault of the school uh, that puts that pressure on them, if it's an internal pressure. Yeah. What will you do, IB, Jeff? But, I mean, now that you're kind of gearing up next year for the, for the, to move to the high school, what, what have you thought, what are your kind of strategies um, kind of ramping up for what? Ooh, we just lost his connection. That wasn't good. Um, but it was a good question. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I I don't know. I, I'm not sure what we'll do. And here I'll add, I'll add Justin back in real quick. Um, but what I'm th you know what I'm thinking of is is just the idea that. Um, hang on, Justin. I've got to add you in this way. Hang on a sec. There we go. Um, well, you know you know what you're going to. Go ahead, David. Jeff, what, what I think you I think what you're going to do is what you you you've done in each of the schools you've worked in. You're going to spend time. You're going to get to know the culture. Uh, you, you've got all the tools. You, you've got all the personal skills. Um, you're going you're gonna to go there and find what the needs are and, and collaborate with teachers and, and find your early adopters and start working with them um, just like you would in any other division. But as Justin's saying, oh, here, I'm only half a year into this. It, I know it's going to take me a few years to really get all the nuances uh, down this program, uh, but for you, that's, that might be something you start looking into 
second semester, just some of the literature. Yeah, and and I think that's a big part of it. And I think for for me is really trying to find ways to get teachers to move to a more blended classroom format to try to you know ease ease into these tools. And I think a great way to do that is to use something like Blackboard or Moodle. And we use oh, okay. we use Moodle here at our school. But is there a way that? And we've already started this process of of moving to a blended classroom environment where some of the work is done in or online in Moodle. Um, right now, we're in a very early adoption stage of that, where teachers are basically using it for digital handouts. Um, and we're, we're slowly getting teachers to start using the forums and having kids turn in assignments that way. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, teachers are all about kids. And if, if you can come to teachers and say, look, kids need to be able to learn this way, because when they go to universities, universities are going to expect them. You know, and especially with the new research out that universities are going to expect kids to be able to turn in assignments online. Are we preparing kids for those universities? Are we preparing kids to do that? And how can we take your class and move that way? I mean, how can we start making it a blended classroom where the content and the studying and all the research that we used to have to do in the classroom can now be done because it's out there. It's on the web. Have the kids do that stuff outside of class. And let's use that true face-to-face -face time in the classroom for those deep, meaningful discussions we, we know we can have. And so for me, I, I, I have had the most success with, with high school teachers of approaching it from that standpoint as, you know, let's get the content out of the classroom and use the classroom for something that is deep and rich and discussion-based. Because the content stuff, you know, we can do all that outside the classroom. We can put that yes. into PantherNet. The kids can go and research the World War II um, you know, by themselves. Okay. The kids can go and research, yeah. you know, go home tonight and I want you to research on the Internet and, and you know, what we've been studying in World War II, I want you to study what's happening right now in Afghanistan with Obama and tomorrow we're going to take 15 minutes to, to see if you found any connections. And so the kids are doing that on their own because that information is out there for them and they can find that information mm -hmm. and they've got that prior knowledge that you've, that you've had the studying in class. Um, so I think it's just yeah. trying, to get, it's trying to get teachers to understand that a lot of this content is out there, and it's not just in textbooks. Um, but yeah. you know, uh, I find still, uh, at all levels, teachers are, are afraid of that because they're afraid that, that kids aren't going to find the right information, that the information is going to be false, that um, it's not going to be to the depth that they want it to be. But to me, that's a learning, right? That That's a learning opportunity. Yes. And I'm just not sure that, that a lot of our teachers, and I'm saying a lot of our teachers worldwide, I'm not saying at any one given school, that teachers worldwide are not to that level yet to understand that those are teachable moments that can lead to deeper learning in your classroom. You got me thinking, Jeff. I mean, we we have we've had Blackboard here for a decade, so we've had that kind of blended learning environment um, for a long time. We're really lucky to have that. But I was just thinking that some of the barriers to entry for to, for school to have a CMS, whether it be WordPress, MU, or, or Moodle, or whatever, are now so much lower and will continue to be that way. And I wonder if we're just around the corner to seeing, you know, and who knows if it's to the IB or, but you have that kind of critical mass where, you know, that idea of a CMS is just part of the way schools do things. Um, and, you know, what? how amazing would it be if Blackboard, you know, got behind one yeah. and said, you know what, here is, here's one that we recommend or, or whatever that may be. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, and, and David says starting with your early adopters. And for me, my early adopters are the students. I mean, and I have found this <laughs> in both high schools, you know, when I was supporting in Shanghai American School and now here at, the, uh, at ISB, what we have found is you get enough teachers to start using 
in our case Moodle, to start putting up their handouts and start using it in that very, that very first form. And all of a sudden, you get the pressure from the kids. And the kids start asking their teachers, can you just put that in Moodle? Can you just put that in Moodle? Can you just put yes. that in Moodle? And you know, when you talk about starting with your early adopters, a lot of times we can get push from the kids. And I think we don't leverage that enough when we're trying to change practices in schools. Um, it, it was great, actually. The high school, our high school magazine just came out today, and there was a great article from the kids about PantherNet, is what we call our Moodle install, um, about how it's increasing learning. And the kids had, had great things to say about it, about how you know it, it's easy. Most of the teachers are now using it. Um, what it's helping them to do in the classroom as far as uploading documents and that kind of thing. And to me, I was like, this is fantastic because now those teachers that aren't using it are going to see an article written from kids that basically say, well, almost every other teacher is using it and kids really mm -hmm. like to use it. And now there's pressure for those teachers to maybe, you know, start dabbling with it and starting to get into it and, and start learning how they, how they can use it in their classroom. And so... It's the same thing with our blog install. You know, we've started slowly blogging, um, and they've been the slowest, slowest to adopt in the high school. But in the, I would say probably in the last month, all of a sudden, Dennis Harder, who's our high school tech guy, he's setting a blog left and right in the high school because the ninth grade English teacher wanted them, and then those kids go to other classes, and yes. you know, other teachers see what's going on, and then our twelfth grade, um, you know, the TOK kids all have a blog for their open reflections, and all of a sudden those kids are talking to other kids who then it gets back to the teacher, and there we're setting up more blogs, and you know what I thought was going to be a, a probably a three year adoption of every student having a blog is looking like by next year every kid in, from fifth grade through twelfth will have a blog in our school, and it's been it's been interesting that when you can get that kind of adoption at such a early level with students that you can really make a lot of change once you get that student buy-in. So. Yeah, and you know what, trying to, trying to hop on things, like there's a big reflective component in the IB, mm -hmm. you know, where kids need to re reflect on a number of different things, whether it be their personal project or the MIP, or their entire process for the extended essay. Exactly. These are places that you can look for to insert those things, and it might not necessarily have to happen in the traditional classroom, but like if you have to log reflection around CAS, why not use one of those mediums? Or if you have to kind of, um, do, you know, the group four project, why not have all of that in a wiki? Yeah. You know, while they're doing it, all notes go there and all kind of uh, discussion happens there. And so yeah. creating those environments for those places and then basically saying this is where you're going to do it. Yeah. Well, and we saw the same thing in Shanghai, and we're now seeing it now that we have Google Apps here at, at ISB, is once we showed, especially the kids when they're working on their extended essay, once we showed them how Google Docs works and that you could share your extended essay as you were editing it, say with two other peer partners in your class and your and the the mentor teacher that you have writing your external um, essay, man, Google Docs took off like wildfire. It had nothing to do with the teachers. The kids yeah. instantly saw a use for it, and a lot of our teachers still aren't using Google Docs, but our kids, man, they are all over that. I mean, they just instantly saw that there. This is a tool that can help me be a better learner. And a lot of the kids now are doing exactly what you said. Like they're taking, you know, a kid will start a Google Doc, invite three other kids in class, and they're taking their own collaborative notes right in class. Like the teacher doesn't even know what's happening. And it's totally fine, right? They're just taking notes like you would any yes. other time. It's just now you've got three brains working. And, and, and I think, again, you know, uh, a lot of times we don't think at that level to create change. We think, okay, a grassroots level change starts with teachers. 
And the mm-hmm. more that I've been in schools, the more I'm working. If you can, if you can sell some of this stuff to the kids, uh, the teachers will follow because they'll start getting the pressure from the kids, which pressures the teachers. Which then, next thing you know, it's just the way work is done at your school. So, and I just throw that out there as you know, get a couple kids under your thumb and get the screws to them. Well, you, you exactly. know, but speaking of when we saw each other, all the way back to the first Learning 2.0 conference, I thought that was one of our biggest takeaways as our community there over that weekend in Shanghai was the kids are the, are when are they going to get to the point that they want to just move beyond teachers and what we're doing that they're going to say you know there are other ways that we can learn and I think we spoke about kids like going to they had friends in college and finding out uh what kids at a a kid at the Notre Dame might be t- taking notes on in biology compared to a kid at UVA. And that way the kids were going out and networking and getting information, uh, bypassing just maybe the teacher who was lecturing uh, in the classroom. So I thought going back a few years, that was one of the, the big takeaways. And I think we're, we're probably all seeing that evident in our classes. And, and on the note with the Google Docs, I think that's probably one of the first steps to help teachers take the steps towards shifting is like in history they do an internal assessment and my kids are writing theirs right now and, and every few days I just go into Google Docs and when uh, when anything's been updated, as you guys know, it's in bold and I just click on it and I'll go in and make some comments and boy, the, the old days of paper going back and forth and lost papers and wasted time are over and I think this that that's a good example of just using simple basic collaborative technology uh, to move forward now what one question and I think we and we've got to do our links of the week um, Justin because I, I want to start doing blogging next year with my seniors for all the reasons you guys have just been speaking about because my ninth graders do it and it's taken off but they're not under the constraints of the IB program right. are you is someone doing it at your school uh, we have blogging going on in yeah grades uh, ten and up, but not so much in uh, like the twelfth grade. So, um, it's, it's not blogging outside; it's blogging kind of internal. Um, I have issues with it, but anyway, it is. Um, it's built in as a kind of component to the new Blackboard upgrade. So that we have them kind of working in that kind of commenting to each other's style um, for around projects and ideas and, and repeater editing, but nothing so formal, uh, you know, and being kind of published outside. That's my next step. That's like my, my goal for the end of the year. So um, as I put blogs into grade 10, they're going to have them again in grade 11 because they'll already been created and then it's going to move to grade 12. So it's going to, it's going to kind of slowly filter up there. And those grade 10 teachers also teach IB English. So it's, it's a, it's a plan in the making. Yeah, and see, that's the same thing, right? Like you're starting with the kids, and sure, the yeah, kids will right. have a blog, and they'll yes. know how to blog, and next year they'll just be in 11th grade, and they'll just think that's the way things are done, right? And they'll expect that's right. things to be exactly. done that way. And, and I just think there's so much power when you start leveraging kids that way. Uh, you know, yeah. the other thing that I keep telling, uh, we're using it as we're selling it, and again, it's a selling point because you have to kind of wrap teachers' heads around it and kids when we get started, is with the kids, we said, look, when you get done with our school, you're going to have a web address that you can put on any college application that is going to be able to look at learning over time. You know, who do you want to be? Start building your profile on the internet. And, you know, here's your portfolio, um, to use a tech, to use the educational term. 
of, of your learning, of your thinking, of the things you've been, you've been studying. And one of the things, you know, that, that kids are very aware of is this sense of audience. And this actually goes into my link of the week, so I'm just going to slide right in there, and that'll give Justin, if you have a blog post yeah. or something you want to share, uh, you can find one. But it goes into this, this sense of audience, and kids truly understand audience on the Internet. And one thing that I, that I, I love about having kids blog and blog openly on the internet is there's almost a built-in audience waiting for them and specifically when you get into high school you know if you're taking you know i'll take the ibtok class the theory of knowledge class that every ib student has to take there are hundreds if not thousands and thousands of kids taking tok around the world and those kids are going to be doing google searches for the same content that your kids are blogging about and very quickly, your students, if they are good writers, if they're good thinkers, can build up an audience and and feel that that audience join them on the on the web because there because there are other kids out there studying the same thing. And we have, I mean, we go down to fifth grade where we start our blogs. We have kids writing book reviews, and some of our kids are getting you know a hundred hits on a book review. And what I can suspect, and I I don't have any data to back it up, but you know what? There's a lot of fifth graders around the world that are probably reading the same book, and they're looking for information yes. on that book. And so here we have this built-in audience for kids that if we can get the kids to understand that, that they take off on it and, and they get it and they, they go to that deeper level on their own and, and they, start to, um, they start to appreciate that. So with that, I just wanted the, the, blog post, the blog post of the week, and I'll put this in the chat, and then, of course, it'll be in our show notes afterwards, um, is actually one that it, it kind of ends with something that uh, my colleague here at ISB and, and Justin's old uh, colleague and still good friend Dennis Harder wrote this week about uh, on, the building, on, on his Building Understanding blog is, uh, do creepy people only surf the web? And it was really good, and, and it comes off of a conversation that got started earlier this week uh, that... Uh, that Dean Shresky started, Clarence Fisher picked up on it. I added to this conversation about audience, and so did David Warlick. And, and what Dennis did was kind of take that one step further. When we're talking about audience on the web, is this thing we're wrestling with at our school is if we have kids producing content for the web, there's always been this rule that you can't have kids' names with kids' pictures. If you can put kids' pictures on the web, you can't put any kids, you can't put the student's name with the picture. And what he really does is brings it back to a post that Dean Shresky wrote about uh, where, you know, Dean starts talking about how when we have a kid that's mentioned in the newspaper, the kid's full name is in there, first and last name. There's usually a picture or a picture of it. And Dean goes on about a kid in his school that just got a baseball scholarship and how the whole school and the whole city was proud that they had this in the paper. And for some reason, that was okay. But that when we try to do that and, and try to you know uplift kids and put them on the web and show them as examples on the internet, that for some reason we have an issue with that. And so Dennis's post is mm -hmm. called "Do Creepy People Only Surf the Web?" And this whole idea is when did we decide that only creepy people are on the internet? You know that basically what we're mm -hmm. saying is only intellectual people read the newspaper and it's okay there to post a kid's picture with their full name. But for some reason, we have this belief that if we were to do that exact same thing on the web, that something creepy would happen. And so it's a really good blog post of just how this, you know, of the kind of what we're wrestling with here. And we've actually just come out with a, a new, um, around this issue here at our school, we were coming down with a, a new kind of statement. It's, I can't call it a policy yet because it hasn't actually been passed. But starting in third grade, you can actually tie a picture with a kid's name. 
Um, and, and we're going to, because we have kids making videos, we have kids doing science projects, we have kids doing all kinds of stuff, making all of this digital media, but they're not getting any credit for it. And so we want to rectify that. And so it's, it's something we've been wrestling with, and that's where a lot of this conversation has come out of. Uh, so that's my link of the week is do creepy people only surf the web? And it's, it's a good read if you, if you have time. Well, one thing, that is, uh, one thing that is creepy is that that was my uh, blog post too. So oh. funny. <laughs> I, uh, I was going to um, – then I'll, I'll actually just add to that one with that the Dean article, which was his, – his post was called Robbing Students of Recognition, which is the baseball example. So, yeah. Jeff, you could link to that one. And um, I thought that was – I mean, we're dealing with the same stuff here, and I thought it was, both of them were excellent uh, at kind of just spinning. It's funny how that's only really coming out now. Yeah, you know, it is that interesting. We're, sorry, isn't it? <laughs> that we're 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 asking some of those questions now, um, and everyone's wrestling with them because um, we just. My big thing is okay. So if someone has your name, and uh, other than I guess certain privacy, and I'm still wrestling with that too. But so what can someone do with that? You know, like what does the worst case look like, and where have we seen that happen, and what can we, how can we use that to educate ourselves? Because we we often throw out there this idea that the worst could happen, but we don't actually know what that looks like. Yeah. We don't really ever talk. Don't ever really talk about it. Yeah. We just say it could happen. But we don't know what it is. Yeah. And so why why is that? And and, and Dennis's article is, is a great one. Yeah. So I want to. Well, and I love and I love the other thing in his article where he points to the new. There's a New York Times report that came out that there was a study done that was commissioned by 49 state attorneys on online predators. And basically, after two years, like this is a huge United States commissioned by, you know, U.S. attorneys and a, a big report. And basically, after two years of research, they came back and said, you know what, there really isn't that big of a threat online. Really, we need to be worried about kids bullying each other is a much worse thing than kids being, you know, picked up by a predator online. And the, the best part about the article, and I, you can read it on the New York Times, it's great, but the best part of the article is basically a couple of the attorney, the state attorneys are just now bashing this report that they told people to go research on because they didn't like the findings. You know, the findings, they wanted the findings to come back to say all of this stuff is horribly bad. And the findings came back and said, well, actually, we can't find any proof that it is that bad. Like, we, what we need to be doing is teaching bullying skills online. You know, cyber, cyber bullying is way more of an issue than anything, than any kid being, a, you know, with creepy predators. So I, That's I, found, right. that, I found that as interesting as, too. We had a great laugh about that one in the office. So. Let me let me rec- let me quote the report. Two quotes because I, I posted about this uh, a while back when it came out. Here's a one quote: Quids, Kids do encounter frequent sexual harassment, abuse, and solicitation from un- online, but it's far more likely to come from other kids. Yeah. And the other quote I really like is that um, law enforcement is far more successful at luring predators than predators are at luring kids. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Those are two great quotes. All right, uh, David, your link of the week. Yes, uh, as a as a newcomer trying to find my information sources to build out my class, I did, I've done a lot of searching on the web for IB postings and, and schools that are putting out information, and and I really have struggled. I haven't found very much. So hopefully, we're going to get more teachers, uh, whether they're going to use their their blogs or, or put up wikis. Um, the one that I have found is uh, the International School of Toulouse. 
they have a very nice site and a lot of information. Uh, it's a good place for, for newbies like myself to learn more about the IB program. They, um, one thing that, that was helpful very recently with the students doing their internal assessment, one of the teachers there put up some samples uh, that the students could go and look at, some exemplars. So that was really helpful as well. So I will put that site up. And uh, could you all, I've got Dennis's site, but could you send me uh, Dean's uh, post in the uh, IM of Skype? For whatever reason, my version of the chat room is being blocked by our filter yeah. at my yeah, school. Yeah, mine, mine too. Uh, I will not do that. All right. Uh, yeah, I'll give. I'll, um, I'll get those all to you in a Skype chat. So that's great. Uh, Justin, where's yeah, your maybe point? Maybe I can put it in the chat. Yeah. Um, I have two. I guess um, here's that. Oh, I guess I have to log into the Ustream. Uh, my school blog, a professional one. Your professional one. Where do you want people to go? Yeah. Um, to read more about I guess what you're doing. Metagogy. Um, you know what? Do it. Do the the school one. That's kind of updated uh, more often. It's uh, blogs.yorkschool.com/slash/tys tech sessions. Tys tech sessions. All right. So we'll do that one for you. Yeah. All right. Well, Justin, I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your work morning to join us this morning. I appreciate it. Uh, it's always great to have you on and and get to chat and catch up with you a little bit. And hope everything's going well with the family and. Uh, you just had a new baby in June, correct? That's right. Yeah. So congratulations on that. And uh, enjoy the cold Thank weather you. as I'm sitting here with a fan in front of me. And I know that you're just, it's just killing you. <laughs> it is. It totally is. Oh, my God. Yeah. I miss the, the Thailand winds for sure. <laughs> David Carpenter, always great to talk to you uh, as usual. We'll see you again in two weeks. And what, what are we doing? In, or, or, is this our last one before winter break, or do we have another one in two weeks? No. We've got one in two weeks, and I'm, I'm just hoping it's going to be on December 16th. Our question is how to recruit to be an international educator, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if Andy, he's, he's probably in the middle of, no, no, it's nighttime there. If Andy is there in the chat room, uh, we really want Andy to come in and be our main guest uh, for that show because it would be interesting to hear where like, where are they right now at Shanghai, what, are, what stage of international recruiting are they in, um, and for him to share insights on how they're using technology and, and working around trying to hire uh, outside of the conferences like a lot of schools are. And let, and let me just throw in real quickly, Justin, this has been so helpful uh, for me. Oh, you're welcome. Coming in new to the IB. Thank you very much. Oh, you're quite welcome. And, uh, yeah, I, I might weigh in next week uh, or in two weeks with your recruitment because, I mean, the way that I went about recruiting to go to ISB was totally rooted in, in technology. I remember tapping into Jeff, I mean, yeah. using Skype to, to basically connect with everyone who could possibly um, – Give me information about the schools I was going to, because none of it, what I, everything I learned was not written in their perspective new teacher package. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you're mm -hmm. around, we'd love to have you back in two weeks. It's always one of our biggest shows because uh, it's a good time of the year as, as contracts are, be, are due here at schools in the next couple of weeks, and uh, the recruiting, the first recruiting fair is January 5th here in Bangkok. So we're Wow. We're getting, yeah, it's getting earlier and earlier every year. So we'll talk about that next week as well. So, all right. Well, Justin, uh, David, great time as usual. And that's another Shifting Our School podcast. Until next time, keep shifting those schools. All right, guys, we're out. Thank you very much. Nice.
Thank you, guys. some cool things happening in phys ed. It's always nice to see uh, cool things happen there. Yeah, you know what? Our phys make- ed department oh. is probably one of our most, like, tech-forward groups. They're so – they're always finding new ways. They're crazy, those guys and gals. Yeah, yeah, we've got uh, yeah, design tech at 1015, phys ed 1120. There we go. Yeah, and then all afternoon we're, we're in there. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. But, 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 a big uh, big day. Hey, with um, your Google Apps, yeah. Um, what server do you run that off of? Uh, well, Google Apps. I mean, they're run by Google, they, so Google hosts everything. They host. They host them. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. They don't give you like a version. No, okay. No, you just have to sign up. You sign up for you sign up for your domain. You need to have some type of domain uh, that you register with them when you sign up for your educational account. Um, gotcha. And then, and then they everything runs through that domain. So, like our our domain here is student.isb.ac.th, and so yeah. um, the mail then uh, is mail.student.isb.ac.th. So that's the Gmail, and then it's docs dot whatever, and then calendar dot whatever. So right. it's very much like they they use their own system, only it's at your domain. But it's all hosted by Google, which is great. We're in the process right now, though. This is, yeah. and we just uh, met with the uh, uh, coder today uh, that we ha- we keep a retainer with, and we're in the process of of um, putting it into Panthernet. So once a kid logs into Panthernet, there will be a button. You know, that'll say go to your, it'll be a button for their Gmail and a button for their docs, and they'll click on it, and it'll be instant login to the Google Mm -hmm. server, because Google gives you access to their API, and so you can, you know, drop a cookie on the machine and authenticate through Moodle, which is fantastic. And there's actually, if you do a search for it, there's a plugin for it. Now, you use Blackboard, and I would think that there's probably a way to do it in Blackboard as well. Yeah, they're really, they're really closed, unfortunately. They don't like... Opening up any API or anything, yeah, even for like single sign-on. So Moodle's actually the way to go if you're looking for really creative yeah. uh, stuff like that. Yeah. So what we're what we'll do is when a kid comes to our school, uh, they'll get an email address, and that email address will be put in PowerSchool. PowerSchool then at midnight every night syncs with um, our uh, Moodle install, so the kids are automatically registered into class. New classes are auto- automatically created. All of that happens at midnight. And so then everything's in Moodle, and then uh, Google will be able to read that student email address, and as new students come in, it will create the email address the first time the kid logs in with the same password and username and everything. So it, if it all works, we'll see. This is this is all theory at the moment, but uh, well, that's been the works, dream, the same, yeah, the exactly. single sign-on, I know the ISB dream for a while oh, since I was there. I know, and we've got a we've got we still don't have it with the blogs. We've got to figure out, and it, it can't be difficult, but. Again, it's it's money, and it's getting the coder to say, okay, we want that to link into this. You know, um, yeah, it's all that, being I think that, that app, so it, that, it's just timing. I think that WordPress MU SQL database. That, yeah, how does that talk to your other databases? Essentially, what you have to do. I think. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but really, it is. It's just time and money. <laughs> That's really it, what it is. It is like the systems at, at my fingertips. Like I can see the system coming together. I, I just wish we had yeah. the time and money to do it, or I had the skills myself to just do it tomorrow. Yeah. You know. I know. Oh, that's really exciting, though. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so it should be good. We'll see. Yeah, Jeff, you, yeah, you got a 
You got a blog about that one because you know the other alternatives to go like uh, my Dragonnet or my Concordia that they all built uh, like the one Justin's put together. Right. But the more that schools can go out for the totally the free alternatives and bring them all under the one single signer, that will be awesome. So that it, so if it does come together well, do post about it because I think that is the direction to go. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. The, we just got to get there. But we had a good a good meeting with our with our programmer today about a couple different things, and uh, that's very much high on our list. Our goal is to have that, the integration between Moodle and, and the Google Apps, to have that ready for second semester. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see if we can get it done, yeah. So. Right, guys, I've got to run that's and awesome. do the teach thing. So, so, so Jeff, would you email me, or, or I'll leave uh, Skype open. Send me Dean, and, and I've got Dennis's okay. link, but send me the, that link. That would be... Great. I will do that. And I'll get the uh, the notes up this afternoon. Sounds good. Again, Justin, All stay right. warm there, buddy. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, we'll see you, Justin. Have a good day at work. Right, take care. You too. All right.